2 Corinthians. We have been going through a book looking to see what it says for us today. And just to give you a a quick glimpse um, as to what this book was about, who this book was to, um, it was written to a group in Corinth. It was written to a church um, who was in a city that boasted about its wickedness and its openness. Uh, It was a city that was full of debauchery, full of lifestyles, indulgence, sin, and um, it's like God planting a church in Las Vegas in the 1940s. Um, Actually, I have no idea if Las Vegas was that big in 1940s, so... um, But Paul is writing to this church. It's a church that he planted. It's a church that he went to. And through a miraculous work of of God, he established a church there. He opened the eyes of people to see the light of the gospel. And the real miracle that happened in in that place is that people came to faith in Jesus. And a church was started and a church was growing. And Paul, this was his problem child. Um, so he had was written multiple letters to them addressing multiple issues because this church was struggling in aligning their lives with what God has asked of them, uh, what is good for them, what is right for them, and what they formerly lived like. And the church looked more like the people around them than it did a distinct group a people that represent the inbreaking of the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, so the character qualities that Jesus lists in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 of, of what people in the kingdom look like, uh, you know, poor, humble, uh, not angry, uh, trusting the Lord, all these things were not being seen in the church. And Paul was writing to help these people. And not only were, were these, these, these things not seen, these people were inviting and embracing teachers who were false teachers, who were leading them into practices and behaviors that were destructive for them, um, and were calling them to reject Paul as authoritative in their life. And so Paul had written an, a, a harsh letter, an angry letter, and then he writes this letter in an attempt to reconcile with the people. Um, and so we've been going through and we are looking at this letter and, and this letter is filled with so many beautiful truths of God's word, right? The almost climax of the book in chapter five, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. The new has come, right? These truths that undergird our life I am righteous not based on what I do. I'm righteous based on what Jesus has done. Uh, I can have fellowship with God, not because I can earn it, but because Jesus gives it to me for free if I just accept it by faith. And so my life as as a Christian is not defined by my actions. My life as a Christian is defined by his actions. And so my security before God is 100%. If I'm in him, there's, there's nothing going to take away my life before him. But God doesn't want me to stay enslaved to the things that he's rescued me from. So he wants me to learn that, live that, and begin to grow in my understanding and my living out of the new life I have in Jesus. 
And so Paul's reaching and calling and, 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 and pleading with the Corinthians about this. And at the end of the book, Paul begins to defend himself. Uh, not for reasons of, hey, I want to set the record straight and I want everyone to know how good of a person I am. But so that the Corinthians would see the deception in their midst. So that the Corinthians would, would be built up in their mission and their life. Um, and that God's gospel would be advanced through the lives of the Corinthians. So at the end of chapter 12, or in, in chapter 12, Paul um, uh, makes this statement that is memorized by many Christ Christians, um, a, a statement of what the Lord spoke to him about a thorn in his flesh and a difficulty in his ministry and his weakness as an apostle, which was being utilized to, um, to, to, uh, to tear down his authority as, as apostle by these so-called super apostles in their midst. And Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, I will boast all the more glad in my weakness, because when I'm weak, God is strong. And so what Paul is doing for these Corinthians, he's trying to shift their understanding, their mind frame. He's trying to give them um, a, a, a change in thinking. Don't view life the way the world does. The, thing, the, the things the world elevate are not the things that God elevates. God elevates dependence. And our weakness becomes a, a, a blessing to us because it becomes something that we can see our need of dependence on the Lord. And the goal for a Christian is not to increase in my power and my ability to do things. The goal as a Christian is to increase in my, my trusting of Jesus. So Paul, at the end of this letter, um, gives his closing comments. And I want to look at the last chapter, chapter 13. Um, I want to uh, make a few observations and then I'll hopefully give us an application for us to go home uh, before we go get injured on the football field. Um, so if you have your book, your Bible open, uh, we're going to be at chapter 13. And this is what he says. Um, this is the third time that I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing in, with you, but he is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So the first thing I want, I want to observe here is that Paul desired to build up the Corinthians in their faith, not use them. Um, this is not the right PowerPoint. So, uh, yep, this is... That's the wrong one. So, um, I'm sorry, note takers. We don't have uh, we don't have the points up there. So you're going to have to listen carefully. Um, <laughs> Paul is prepared to discipline the Corinthians if necessary. Paul loves this church so much that he is prepared to discipline them if necessary. 
He doesn't want to. He doesn't want the confrontation. He doesn't want to stand against them. He wants them to change their behavior back to a beneficial life that is for them and good for the gospel and not come with a heavy hammer. But he will because he loves them. So Paul starts this out flipping the script onto the Corinthians. This, this whole letter has him being defending against charges that, and accusations that are against him. Almost as if Paul was on a trial in front of the Corinthians. And he's standing there having to defend himself, and he changes it. Now you defend yourself. And he uses a scripture um, quoted out of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So Paul says this because he's sending his people before him. Titus and what he says, who he says as the uh, brother who's famous among the churches. We don't know who that is. He sends them with this letter to bring it to the congregation so that when he comes, there are two or three witnesses against the congregation in their uh, poor behavior and destruction, in a sense, of the gospel, the, 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 the voice of the gospel in the community. So he can come and bring a charge against them. Now, as a side note, um, you know, much of our law uh, it comes out of biblical precedence. Um, the, the whole idea of having a trial by witness comes out of the Bible Be because God desires to protect the innocent. And in a court of law, it's very easy for one person to say something against someone else and make, it make them seem like they're in the wrong. And God, time and time before, and as he's establishing Israel, multiple places, there's at least four different verses that speak and reiterate this same uh, passage. You have to have two witnesses if you're going to bring some charge against someone. If you're going to put someone to death for something, you have to have two or three witnesses. You can't just stand out there and throw accusations. That needs to be uh, collaborated. Uh, God is more concerned with protecting the innocent than he is necessarily with charging the guilty. He, he wants the truth to be uphold and he wants the innocent to be protected. Um, because Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states his case first seems right until another, another comes and examines him. Right? I can easily say something against someone. I can easily throw out an exact accusation towards someone. But when it's confirmed with a few other people, then I know it's right. Um, and people who do wrong in the court of law uh, are not ready to tell, them, tell the judge that they actually did the wrong, right? Um, so Paul is speaking to them saying, look, I'm bringing my witnesses I'm bringing my evidence, I'm bringing it to you, and I'm ready to punish those who are being destructive towards you, the ones who are leading you astray. I'm ready to, to discipline them for your health. 
Um, see, one commentator, commentator said, he said, Paul's, in Paul's mind, there was, there was no innocent bystanders in what happened at Corinth. Standing by and just letting the Corinthian church do what they're doing makes one party to the sin. Paul's aggravation with the Corinthians' tolerance of even the outrageous sin bursts forth in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2, when he expresses dismay and surprise that they are not mourning about the man living with his father's wife. He fully expects Christians to be active in disciplining fellow members who have sinned, as well as merciful in forgiving those who repent. Where it seems like this man in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, did. So this, this church had a history of just embracing things that, that Gentiles did not even embrace. Right? There's a man who had his father's wife, his stepmother. And they're like, look how graceful we are, grace-filled we are. And Paul's like, no, that's, that's a misunderstanding of grace. That's not what grace is. You guys need to be, be helping your brothers and sisters out. You need to be going to them. This is not good for you. You're, this, is not, this is not okay. But at the same time, when the Lord works and he disciplines, his discipline is always restorative, not punitive. His goal is not to destroy someone. His goal is to uplift them and help them back on a path that is good for them. And so when this person repents, changes their mind, embrace them back. In the same way, Paul's saying, look, I can't stand here. I mean, or wherever he was in Macedonia and say nothing to this church. I mean, that would be the easy thing. I'm going to let this church continue in the life that they're living and doing the things that they're doing. That's, that's easy. Just go. I don't, I don't want the confrontation. I don't want the hag. But he didn't. He addressed them. So look, what you're doing is not right. What you're doing is not okay. And I love you too much not to allow you to be destroyed from within which is really what any sin in our life does. Destroys us from within. Anything that we think is going to bring us pleasure in the moment ultimately brings us death if it's not aligned with what God desires for our life. So Paul, speaking to them, look, you looking for proof that Christ is speaking with me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but he's powerful among you. He was crucified by weakness, but he lives in the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but dealing with you, we live by the power of God. See, Christ was crucified in weakness. He was persecuted, he was spit upon, he was rejected, and he was killed. And the world could look at that and say, man, that's not a savior. That's not someone I, who I should follow. That's not someone worthy of my veneration and admiration and, and respect. He couldn't even handle his own kingdom. But God did what no one else could do in the weakness of Christ and dealt with the issue that affects all of humanity, our sin. The separation from God. And in Christ's death, he reconciled the world to himself, not counting the trespasses, our former trespasses against us. 
right? So the power of God was worked mightily through the weakness of Christ on the cross, weakness, him enduring the cross for us. And then his power is displayed in the Corinthians because they exist. They are there. The miraculous power of God exists in the Corinthians because they exist as a church in a society that is running hard in the opposite direction of God. But it is a miracle that, that there is actually a congregation of people who said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the living Son of God, co-equal with the Father. He died on the cross, he rose again from the dead, and we trust him, and we want to live our lives for him. And we're doing it really terribly, but we love him. That's a miracle. It's, it's no more than a miracle than, let's, I mean, I, I went to seminary in Dallas. Dallas is the land of the megachurch. Right? There's like one on every corner. Like 12,000 people in this church. Oh, cool. Right next door to another 12,000 person church. Like, this is crazy. But it's normal over there. The miracle of the Corinthian church would be like if there was a 12,000 member church in Newark, Delaware. That would be an absolute move of God in this area. God did a miracle in their life. His power was seen in their existence and his power was worked through Paul and his obedience to go and proclaim the message to them. See, these Corinthians were somewhat obsessed with the miraculous. All, all throughout the first Corinthians, Paul is addressing with a hyper um, focus on outside actions, which are not necessarily wrong. Right? Paul says, pursue the gifts, right? Speaking in tongues, prophesying, do all those things, pursue them, but don't overvalue them over a life that is obedient to the Lord. Don't overvalue them through a dependence and a trust on Jesus. The power of God is seen in these things, but it is more clearly seen in a life that is dead and now resurrected through Jesus. The miracle of an unsaved person accepting the news of who Jesus is and now being rescued and saved and redeemed for all eternity. <clears throat> so Paul continues, and he flips the script on him. He's, he's confident um, that as he asks them to examine them, themselves, that they're going to evaluate their own standing in Christ, and they will ultimately recognize who he is. So read with me in, in verse 5. <clears throat> examine yourselves see, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but you may, not, you may do what is right, though we may, may seem to have failed. See, Paul, like I said before, he's, he's flipping the script on them. You want to examine me, I want you to examine yourself. I want you to look at yourself. I want to look at your life. 
Look at, look at what you believe, what you are following, what you are doing. Are you in the faith? And behind that is not a, a question of whether they're in the faith. Behind that is, I believe they are in the faith. I'm expecting that you're going to see you are in Christ. And when you see that you are in Christ, you will see that we are in Christ too. And we're not teaching you something opposite of what God wants for you, but we are teaching you something that God desires for you. That God is not working through the proud and those who are strong in the world and what the world values, the good orators, uh, the people who have, have it all together. God is actually working through the weak. God is working through the people who don't have it all together. God is working through people who are persecuted. God is working through people who have a difficult life. God works through people who don't speak very well or remember the lines from the song. God doesn't look for the perfect things of this world. God works through the dependent. So he's, he's turning the tables on them, and he's asking them to look at themselves, and he's, he's saying, look, see if you're holding on to the same faith. Like, and even in doing so, Paul's not elevating himself. We trust that you will see that we're of the same faith, but we're not, we're not there so that we, you can see that we've passed the test. We don't even really care about that. My goal is not that, that I am accepted in your sight. My goal is that you live in a way that is good for you and good for the expanding of the gospel in the world. We pray to God that you may not do wrong not that we may have appeared to meet the test, but that you may do what is right, though we seem to have failed. Look, if it, if it takes me looking as if I missed the mark, I'm okay with that as long as you come back to a healthy, vibrant life before God. And you reject these people who are abusing you and trying to take your money, take your funds, lead you into all sorts of things that are destructive to you. He says, verse 8, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away for you, that when I, come, when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not tearing down. We cannot do anything against the truth. And here's where Paul's main, um, main passion and direction is, um, or, or security in a sense, is that truth is unchangeable. It will eventually reveal itself. But the lies and distortion that these super apostles are saying about Paul ultimately will fade away to nothing. Because they cannot change the truth that Paul, who was called Saul, met Jesus on a road to Damascus going to go kill Christians and that Jesus rescued him and made him to a person who's willing to be lay his life down so that other people might know Jesus. 
The lies of the super apostles do not change the fact that God, through Paul, worked and established the church in Corinth. So really, the way in which he's seen by these people, these Christians, although it's painful for him, he's gotten to the point where he says, it doesn't matter to me. I know who I am. I know God has called me. I know God is working through me. And I know God is going to bring me to himself. And so I'm going to continue pressing forward for the upper call that is in Christ Jesus. I'm going to continue preaching the gospel and calling people to repentance. I'm going to continue calling my fellow brothers and sisters out of the bondage of slavery, of sin that they find themselves in, into the freedom and righteousness that's found in Jesus. So if you don't understand me, that's fine. But if it, if, if it comes to the fact where you, you come and you reconcile with the Lord and you reconcile with one another and you begin living as the representation of who God is in this world, I'm okay with the marring of my reputation. He wants them to succeed. He loves them. He's willing to lay down his reputation for them. He's willing to lay down his standing for them. Greater man has no love than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. And I tell you, that is one of the hardest things to do. To not seek to defend yourself when you think the records are not right. To not seek to uphold what's true and trust the Lord to work it out. But what freedom is found in a life that says, you know what, Lord? If there's any unpleasing way in me, you lead me. But you know the truth. You're the just judge. You're the one who has it all together. You're the one who keeps all the accounts. You're the one, you're the one who knows what's right. And so I'll trust you in it. I want to do your will. I want to follow through with the ministry that you've given me. I want to see your name and your renown spread through this earth. I want to see people know you because your desire is that your people will live in the truth that you've given and represent who you are to this world. And this is my final point. God's desire for his church is that they would live out of his truth and represent who he is to the world. God's desire for his church is that they would live out of his truth and represent who he is to the world. So Paul ends this message, this, this letter uh, on reconciliation with this statement. Finally, brothers, aim, rejoice, Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace 
And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He ends with a description of a picture of what God desires for his church, which was not really true in Corinth at this time. They had dissensions. They had egotistical people. They had divisions. They had people fighting for their own way, not agreeing with one another, not living at peace with one another. Their discord. They didn't treat him like a brother, like family. They treated Paul as an outsider. And those were hurling insults to him, marring his reputation, speaking badly about him. What does he call them? Finally, brothers. Siblings. Family. Aim for restoration. Rejoice. There's been some heavy things handed to you, but rejoice. Why? Jesus has already paid your debt. Rejoice. You've never gone too far that the Lord cannot redeem. Rejoice. It's not over. You made some mistakes, but you can always start again. Rejoice. God is in your midst and he is working. Rejoice. He is more powerful than the one in the world. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Don't sit back and wait for someone else to come for you. You go towards that restoration. Restore yourself to the Lord. Restore yourself to his people. Restore yourself to what he has asked of you, to your ministry, your purpose, your mission, your desire to understand and see the world rightly, that we are all passing away like a vapor. We get a moment, and we're gone. And we can either trust the Lord and see him work and invest in his kingdom, or we can stay in our own little silo of self-made comfort that doesn't actually bring comfort and try to manage and fix our own life. Or we can aim towards him, restore towards him, have peace with him, have peace with others, look to be a part of the solution of what God's trying to do. Look, the, the church, the church is intended to be a picture, a representation of what life is like with God when his kingdom and his rule and his reign go forth unhindered. The people that are gathered out from the world and come together like we have here in our little congregation is supposed to be a place where family, as God describes it, is clearly seen. Where there's peace, where our disagreements can have an actual conversation and not blow up where we can admit our failings and our shortfalls, where we can come not perfect and look to lean on someone else to help me grow in what it means to know and follow and serve Jesus. 
So he's speaking to the Corinthians. Look, the whole world around you, your whole culture, everything around you is in discord, disarray. People are fighting for themselves, looking for themselves, trying to to be comfortable or surround themselves with all cool things like a gold chariot and, uh, you know, platinum, silver, uh, clay cups. I don't know, whatever they like. You're not to be looking at those. It's a sincere devotion before Jesus that you need to see. It's a sincere desire to see Jesus' life magnified in your life. And it comes not by waiting for someone else to fix the problem, but it comes from you examining yourself, looking at yourself, and trusting the power and grace of the love of the Lord Jesus through God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to change me from the inside out and to begin to fix the discord within his people. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I mean, we could spend a whole sermon on that. But the reality is that the triune God, one God, three persons, three persons, one God, is 100% involved in your growth and your walk as a believer. His grace, Jesus, is his grace, is for you. God of love, who loves you deeply, loves you, doesn't want to reject you, isn't mad at your failing or shortcoming. Doesn't care if you took a crayon to the wall. He loves you. And his Holy Spirit, who is real and is a person and actively works in his people for our good and his glory, is there to produce fellowship, not only with God, but with each other. So the question I want to leave with you today Instead of just the application of greet each other with a holy kiss, which I'm sure everyone would love to do, um, or maybe we, no? No, okay, no. I mean, John Christensen said, if you kiss another brother and sister, you're kissing the floor, the, the door to the temple, right? No, no, okay, never mind. Um, the question I want to I leave with you is, is, do I know Jesus? And is it evident in my life? Do I know Jesus? How is it working out in my life if I do? If you don't, that's simple. Right now, right today, you can know him. You can receive him. You can find the life and the joy that is found in Jesus. The weight you're carrying, the, the, the discord you're feeling in your own soul, you can have peace. Come to me all who are weary and are heavy laden and I will give you peace. Isaiah says, come, buy, without mil- buy milk without money, buy bread without money, come receive It's just simply going, Jesus, I believe that you are real. 
You died on the cross. You lived a life I could not live. You died the death that I deserve. I deserve death because of my sin, and I can't help myself. But you say you're powerful enough, and so, Lord, I trust you. Please come, rescue me, forgive me, redeem me, and change me. I believe you are the Savior. Save me. It's no magic words. It's just a heart posture that trusts Jesus. You can do that today. If you've known them for a long time and you're looking and going, man, yeah, there is a lot of issues in my life. There weren't a while ago. I was doing really good, but then you know what? Um, it was a Tuesday and uh, I stubbed my toe and then everything went downhill from there. Today is the day you can return. Today is the day that you can actually live out the reality of the forgiveness that he's already given to you and start seeing him powerfully work within you. God is faithful. He's full of grace and love. He loves you. He's for you cares for you. He's committed to his church. He'll defend you and uphold you. Let's trust him. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that you sent Paul to Corinth to establish a church, a church that reflects our own hearts in many ways and many times. Lord, I thank you for the letter that he gave to them that informs so much of what we are called to do in living before you. Lord, I thank you that the Corinthians responded in favor because you sent Paul there for three months and he wrote the, the letter of Romans there for us. Lord, I thank you that you love us so much to confront our sin And that your grace is so great that you do not remember it. Lord, we ask that you would form us more closely into your image. That you would make us to be a people that represent who you are to this world. We trust you, praise you, your name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship our creator.